0: Great, thank you, Sarah. If you could, if you if you've got children, you may want to go ahead and dismiss them right now to children's church with uh, Miss Sarah Clausen back over there. And if you're relatively new to our fellowship, we want you to know you can certainly keep your kids with you at this time. But we have something going on that's really designed to disciple them in a way that's meaningful to them. Uh, This morning, I really wanted to talk um, about friendship. Uh, I uh, appreciate. Uh, your friendship and sometimes I think we're not real clear on uh, what friendship is or why it's so important. So I wanted to direct your attention to the scripture to help you as you think through, uh, friendships and relationships in your own life. And we do need to turn to the Bible because our culture as a whole doesn't give us a whole lot of direction or help, especially as it pertains to friendship. I I looked around at different authors and quotes and all the rest and it wasn't that helpful here here's one quote uh, friendship is like the bacon bits on your salad <laughs> that's not real helpful okay but that's that's a quote uh, another is i'm pretty sure we're gonna we're gonna be lifelong friends because we are too lazy to look for other friends <laughs> now that may be true i don't know i don't know it's terribly helpful Uh, But we're going to direct our attention to the Bible. And I want to look at one of the most famous friendships in the Bible as we think about friendship. I want to direct your attention to the relationship between David and uh, Jonathan. And then we're just going to talk about the importance of friendship. We're going to talk about the elements of friendship. And then I'm going to ask you to answer for yourself, how can I be a better friend and and to whom? So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word We're looking at 1 Samuel chapters 18, 19, and 20. I'm just going to read a few representative verses. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now in the next chapter... Verses four through five. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked for a great, worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And then finally, the end of 1 Samuel chapter 20. And Jonathan gave, him, gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. May God bless the reading of word. You may be seated. Now, uh, talking about friendship, why do we need friends? Why are they so valuable? Let's get into it like this. Uh, let's get into the story here. Here's the the setup. In 1 Samuel, we see that Saul, who is the king, invites David to come and live at the palace, to live in the royal court, okay? And the reason King Saul does this is not because Saul likes David, it's because Saul sees David as a rival. David is a successor, but he's a successor not by bloodline, but by the choice of God. And Saul's also very concerned about David because David is so very popular to the people. He's killed Goliath and everybody loves David. And so Saul feels threatened by David. So David gets brought to the palace and while he's there in this short period of time, Saul tries to kill him six times. The first three are are covert attempts, the next three are more overt and you kind of wonder, well... David, if he's trying to kill you and then he tries to kill you again, why are you staying (laughs) at the palace? You know, the first two are kind of a clue. It's time for you to go, but he has to stay because it's the will of the king. So this is a very, very dangerous time in David's life. And there's a lot of dangerous times in David's life, but this is probably one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous time in all of David's life. And yet, at the beginning of all of this, at the beginning of chapter 18, we see that David enters into this relationship, into, the, into this friendship with Jonathan. And then, as we just read, at the end of chapter 20, when David is leaving the palace grounds, this covenant relationship is reaffirmed. There's the establishing of the covenant, and then there's the reestablishing of the covenant. And, and what you see is the bookending, or the boundering, of this dangerous time in David's life, this friendship that he has with Jonathan, And here's the question, okay, what is the writer, what is the narrator trying to get across? It's real simple. If you want to survive in life, you have to have a good friend, okay? You ought to know this. I ought to know this. The Bible is not telling us anything at this point that we shouldn't already recognize, and that is there's going to be difficulties and trials and tribulations in life. There's going to be storms, and if you don't have friends, good friends... You're gonna sink. That's what's at the very least being communicated. And I think most of us know this. As a, as a nation, Zimbabwe understands this, the importance of friends. Let me kind of explain something to you. How many of y'all have heard about friendship benches? Blue zones, friend, friendship benches. Does that ring a bell for anybody here? This is really kind of interesting. Less than two decades ago, Zimbabwe established these things called friendship benches in blue zones. And the friendship benches are quite literally park benches that are on the grounds of medical facilities, medical grounds around major cities. And the whole idea is people go to these friendship benches, sit on the bench, and talk to a trained community leader about their kufun uh, kasisa, which is translated thinking too much. Now, I went to college and I got a degree in philosophy. I paid good money. or I mean, My parents paid good money. I was smart enough to not have to pay for it myself. But my parents paid good money to teach me how to think too much. And in Zimbabwe, you've got to be healed of that. Isn't that amazing? Now, actually, what it's translated overthinking or thinking too much, probably the the English equivalent is going to be depression. And I don't know if you knew this, but typically overthinking or thinking too much or living too much in your own head creates depression so they've got these little friendship benches set up all over zimbabwe on these medical grounds and it got started because the there was a psychiatrist at zimbabwe uh, the university of zimbabwe who said you know like in america here in zimbabwe there's a lot of stigma that is attached to mental illness so people don't necessarily want to go to the mental health clinic to see a mental health professional to talk about their mental illness but they'll probably go sit on a park bench with a community leader and talk about their worries. And so on a weekly basis, people go and sit on these benches with these community leaders and they just talk about their problems. Just It's basically one hour a week of intentional friendship. They they followed people who had depression and anxiety for a period of six months and they found that within six months, only 13%, of this is a big study, almost 600 people... Only about 13% still were suffering from depression and anxiety after just sitting on a bench an hour a week talking to a friend. Now, I I was, before I was a philosophy major, I was a psychology major at, at Baylor. And I remember in my introductory to psychology class, you know, having all of the stuff thrown at me concerning developmental psychology and abnormal psychology and all the rest. And at the end of this overview, the professor had this conclusion. If people just had more love, if people just lived in healthy family and friend relationships, 99% of the people in the mental health profession wouldn't necessarily be needed because what people need more than anything else is just the unconditional love that you're supposed to find in family and among friends. We need friendship. You can't survive, you cannot thrive without friendship. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us the specific reason for that, and that is that we were created in the image of God. You go back to the the very beginning, the the first narrative in the Bible, and you see this sort of cadence or rhythm when God is creating the world. It's good, it is good, it is good. And then in the middle of chapter 2, there's this moment where God says, it is not good, it's the first Maldiction that is spoken. This is not good. And it's amazing because sin hasn't entered the world. There's nothing wrong. Nothing's broken. There's no sin. There's no disease. There's no death. And still in the middle of paradise, God says, this isn't good. You know what he says specifically? It is not good for man to be alone. People need friends. It's almost as if God intentionally created us to need other people. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of the first great awakening, said God is probably the least possessive, the the least envious personality in the universe because he intentionally created people to need others beside God. The Bible tells us in the beginning that God says, let us create man in our own image. Who's the us? Who's the our? It's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. Within the Godhead beginninglessly there was friendship. So when God creates you and he creates me in his image, he creates us to love and to be loved. He creates us specifically for friendship. And what that means is if you ever kind of think to yourself, listen, I I'm kind of lonely or maybe you think I'm always lonely or I always want better friends or I wish this relationship was deeper. If there is a passion in you for friendship, if you sometimes or maybe oftentimes feel lonely, that's not an imperfection. It's a perfection. People who are perfect need other people. You want other people. If you don't want to be around other people, you don't need other people. That's not your. That's not an imperfection. That, no, no, no. You, you're not perfect. If you, I don't need anybody. I'm perfectly fine on my own. No, no, no. That's that's satanic. The Bible teaches. It's okay to be alone, or or to feel lonely because you were created for friendship in the image of God. Okay, that's the first thing. How valuable is this? This is essential to human. Thriving friendship, okay What are the elements then of friendship? Because, you know, we have friends, right? I mean, everybody has I don't know 100 200 800 You know friends on social media and most of us intuitively go. I'm not so sure that those qualify as legitimate friends What's a friend a true friend? The Bible tells us there are two things that shows us very clearly here in this passage. There are two things two elements that are absolutely essential to, to authentic friendship. Number one, constancy. And then number two, you've got transparency. Where do I see this? Let's go ahead and look at these one at a time. Constancy. At the beginning of the establishing of the relationship in chapter 18, verse 3, the scripture tells us once again, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then at the very end of the chapter you have this renewal of a covenant where David and Jonathan are talking to one another and it's clear that this covenant relationship this friendship is going to last like family it's going to last beyond the grave because even though Jonathan and and uh, David are going to come to an end physically their offspring are still going to have this covenant between them it's it's like you know i've got a brother we're family but so too my children, our family, with his children. So when we talk about covenant or we talk about permanence, here in chapter 20, there is a forever quality that is a part of this friendship because friendship, true friendship, is covenant. Friendship's not contract, it's covenant, and covenant is not contract. Okay, let me explain this to you because we live in a world that really understands contracts but do, they don't understand covenants very well at all, okay? In the marketplace, in the world of commerce, you've got these relationships that are a consumer-vendor. And in a consumer-vendor relationship, your relationship with the vendor can change or it can disappear because you will have a relationship as a consumer with the vendor only as long as the vendor gives you what you want at a at an agreed-upon price, at a cost that works for you. But when the vendor starts charging too much, or if you find another vendor that can give you the same product for less expense, or they can give you the same product at the same expense... More quickly, or they just give you a better product for the same cost. If you can just find a better vendor that gives you what you want in a way that suits you better, you're going to leave vendor number one and jump over to vendor number two. There's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to Walgreens for a while and then you find out, hey, there's a better deal over at CVS, and I can do better over at HEB, or I can do the drive-through, like that's okay. They're just a vendor. You're just a consumer. And you're only in the relationship for what you are going to get out of it because in the consumer-vendor relationship, it's all about you. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. In business and in commerce, that's the way the world works. But here's the problem. The consumer-vendor relationship has kind of bled over into what used to be covenant relationships. Let me explain a covenant relationship. Covenant relationships not come and go. It's not changing because in the covenant relationship, you're not in it for you. You're in it for them. Or in the covenant relationship, you recognize that you take a back seat to the well-being and the thriving of the other person or put a little bit differently. You take a back seat to the health of the relationship because you feel like you are a part of something bigger than you. The relationship is bigger and you're a part of it, not, hey, they're a part of me. In the consumer-vendor relationship, it's basically about you getting what you need from the other person. They're just a means to an end. And the end isn't them. The end is what they give you. But in a covenant, the end is the other person and the relationship in and of itself. Covenant is for family. Covenant is for friends covenant is for marriage. And and marriage is the ultimate friend and family. If you're in a relationship that is till death do you part, but that's friend and family combined. And when covenant gets lost in marriage, it gets lost. Period. This is why you see people kind of Every once in a while, people will kind of go down this path. I'm in this marriage, and I'm not getting out of the deal what I thought I would. Or I'm giving more to the deal than I thought I should. I'm getting less out of this than I bargained for. When you start talking along those lines, you know what the real problem is? It's not that you're getting ripped off in the deal. It's that you saw it as a deal in the first place. You were looking at a covenant like a contract. You weren't giving yourself to the other person. You were in a business arrangement thinking you were going to get out of this X, Y, and Z, but that person was only a means to an end. They weren't an end in and of themselves. Contracts have bled over into covenant. And that's why we're dealing with the mental unhealth that we're dealing with because people don't know the unconditional love of Family and friends and the combination of the two, the ultimate covenant of marriage. I said something last week that kind of caused everybody to gasp. This was in the first service and the second service. And I I talked about how there was this Japanese researcher that said in the modern era, because of, you know, modern social and economic structures, people are now doing the cost-benefits analysis. People now consider having children. Uh, to be more cost than it's worth, or I think that her specific words were that uh, people were deeming that having children wasn't worth it, or or something along the lines of uh, there wasn't a payout, and people were like what, like it's it's not worth the price. You have the children, and then you feel like you're ripped off, and. And this is true people are opting out of children they're opting out of marriage they're opting out of having kids at all intentionally and oftentimes it's with the design because the cost of children outweighs their utility or their usefulness and you kind of go well that i don't know that that's entirely wrong but it feels wrong and the reason it feels wrong is because it is wrong because when it comes to relating to children parents shouldn't relate to their children as a means to an end or along the lines of a contract, but rather along the lines of covenant. When you enter into a covenant, you yield to the relationship and you yield to the other person. And sometimes, yeah, if you were looking at it as a deal, you'd get completely ripped off. I was visiting with a man. I'm not going to tell you who this was. It was years ago. Maybe some of you might have known. I don't know. But I was visiting with a guy, and legitimately, his wife was difficult. And that's an understatement. And I asked him one time, like, I really, it's it's hard to go there because you never know how they're going to take it. But I, I asked him, so how how do you do it? Like, really, how do you stay married to this person? And he told me. Yeah, it being married to her, is, it's hell. His words. And they remain married till death do them part. You know why? Because he understood. This was not a contract. This covenant. Now there are times when the covenant is broken and you just recognize the relationship is dead. The only time divorce is allowed is when you already see the relationship is dead. When a horse is dead, you dismount. It's not like the Bible doesn't ever give you an out. The out comes when you see it's just already done. But this guy I respected beyond measure because he just recognized I'm involved in something bigger than me and to undo this covenant would be the undoing of me. That's an attitude that our grandparents had and our great-great-grandparents had, and we don't necessarily have so much because we think that's just dumb. And the reason it looks dumb to some of us is because we think of everything in terms of contract. Jonathan saw, no, no, no. There are covenants. Look at what Jonathan does. Look at, Notice the covenant. When Jonathan enters into this covenant with David, immediately his personal balance sheet goes into deficit. He gives up the throne. His dad... Uh, doesn't trust him because now Jonathan is friends with his enemy. And eventually, you know what this does? It leads to Jonathan's death on the field of battle. And at no point along the way does Jonathan ever say, you know, I'm going to go get another vendor. This isn't working out for me. Because true friendship is covenant. True friendship has a constancy to it. There's a second thing that we see in the Bible with regards to true, authentic, deep and abiding friendship, and that is transparency. In verse 1 of chapter 18, it says that they were one in spirit, Jonathan and David. And then it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. What are you talking about here? How much How much does your soul love your soul? Well, I don't even know how, how do you make... I'm indistinguishable from me. My soul loves my own soul with all my soul's soul. Like, what do you mean? If you love somebody else with all of your soul, your happiness is intertwined. You are absolutely bound to them and available to them and transparent to this other person. There's a transparency there. You don't do that in in contracts. Have you noticed this? That when you're working out a contract, there are certain things that somebody highlights, and then there's the fine print. And you hope they don't read the fine print because you're trying to spend things to your advantage. When people sell things to you, they try to highlight the, the benefits and then, you know, buyer beware. If you want to, you can go down into the basement or you can go to the attic and check things out. But I'm just going to hide things from you if I'm in a contract negotiation because that's how it works between consumer and vendor. With the exception of medical commercials. I don't know why they spend the majority of the time talking about all these terrible things that could happen to your life. But I guess they're required to. But other than those commercials, on the whole, vendors highlight things and hide others. But when you're in a friendship, you reveal everything. You're transparent. You talk about your beliefs and your values and your decision-making. And, of course, there's the feelings. Notice Jonathan and David. When they depart, when they part ways from one another... These are men, these are grown men, and they're crying, and they're weeping, and they're kissing each other, and it's not weird. And then you look over like a, you know, a millennia later, the same sort of thing happens in Acts chapter 20, you've got the apostle Paul, and he's leaving the Ephesian elders, and he, he's going up to, to Rome, and everybody's weeping and embracing and, and crying. Why? Because of the transparency that is there for friends. Now, the question arises, okay, can I be that kind of a friend for other people? Absolutely constant and transparent. Could I be like Jonathan? Now, before you answer that question, let me press into Jonathan a little bit more because I want you to see the level of his friendship with David because there are friends and then there are capital F, capital R, capital I, capital E and D, okay? Capital friends, okay? There are friends and there are friends. And here's Jonathan. First of all, you see his friendship and the degree of his friendship when he when he takes off his robe. And back in the day, if you were the prince, your crown, your royal designation was your robe. If you were a king and you abdicated from the throne, you would take off your robe and lay it on the throne. That's how the abdication worked. And so he's giving up his crown rights. That's Jonathan. Jonathan also, of course, takes off his armor so he's vulnerable. And on top of that, he, he hands over his sword. You didn't do that. If you handed your sword to somebody else, it's hilt first. And what does that mean? That means like the, the blade's pointing back at you. When you surrender your armor and then you surrender your sword, you're basically saying, I, I give up all my power. You've got the sword. It's pointed at me. You know, kill me if you must. My life is in your hands. I absolutely bend my knee before you. You didn't do that back in the day. If you had a, if you had a competitor, if you had a, another, you know, person who was competing against you for the throne, you didn't give him the hilt. You gave them the blade and the gut. But here's Jonathan absolutely yielding. Why does he do this? Well, part of it's friendship, but that's not the whole of the explanation because David is a friend of Jonathan too. And, and Jonathan doesn't say, okay, you have the throne. And then David says, oh, no, no, you have the throne. No, you get the throne. No, you get the throne. No, come on out. Let's flip a quarter or I'll get it this time. You get it later. There's none of this back and forth. You know why? Well, it's because it's not just friendship. There's something else that's going on. And it's and Jonathan yields the throne not because he's an incapable leader. He would have been a much better king than Saul ever was, okay? He's a strong person, Jonathan. There's another story in, in 1 Samuel about how uh, Jonathan defeats this enemy almost single-handedly and nobody thought he could do it. This is a strong man. This is a capable person. This is not somebody who, I don't know, married somebody from Hollywood and they just couldn't take royal life or anything like that. No, no, this is Jonathan, okay? He could do it. Why does he give up the throne? Why does he yield? Here's why. Friendship to David, but it's also friendship to God. Jonathan recognizes that God is in David sitting on the throne. He recognizes that God's got a plan for the nation or for the people. And he also recognizes, since I'm a friend to the people and a friend to David and a friend to God, I'm going to get off the throne so I can be a part of what it is that God is up to. There's more than just simple friendship here. Let me put it to you like this in more personal terms. I've got this friend. His name is Marshall Canales, starting their first service today at 4 o'clock across the street for Emmaus Church. I think it's fantastic that our church said, hey, we've got a space that you can use on four o'clock in the afternoon. And it wasn't that big of a deal because we're not using it anyway, frankly. Okay. But it's kind of cool, not just because I'm friends with him and not just because this church is friends with another church. We're doing this largely because we recognize, hey, we're friends with God. And we see that God's got a hand on this person and He's extending the friendship of God to other people who maybe haven't accepted the friendship of God. When you make decisions like this, you're always thinking about the other friend, but you also ought to be thinking about your friendship with God, and you also ought to be thinking about your friendship on a grander context, and Jonathan's doing all of this. And in the end, he yields everything, and he dies. Now, again, let me ask you this. Can you be that kind of a constant, transparent friend to other people around you? Can you be Jonathan to other people? And some of you are going, uh, you know, um, no. I don't know that I could be that transparent, constant, and available. Um, well, I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your honesty. Okay. And I appreciate your humility. But I want you to think for just a second about what you know that Jonathan didn't know, that David didn't know. Okay. You know Jesus. Jesus. And in this passage, Jesus is the ultimate Jonathan. Now, I'm going to press you on this for just a second. Let's get back to Jonathan. Think about what Jonathan could have done. He's a covenant friend, but what if he weren't? What if he was not covenantal in his relationships? He could have done one of two things. He could have taken the side of David. or Let's just start with Saul. He could have taken Saul's side, his dad's side, said, you know what? I'm just going to take your side dad, we're going to kill David, I'm going to get the throne and everything's going to be fine, I'm going to be safe. It would have been very simple, he could have done that, he doesn't do it. On the other hand, he could have taken David's side. Not necessarily to kill his dad, but he could have taken David's side, so we're going to run off into the wilderness together and we're just going to wait things out because my dad is crazy. And uh, he's, I mean, he's crazy. His military and political maneuverings and policies are just, they're insane. And I'm just gonna let that pass and then either when he kills himself or goes down or gets out of this phase, I'm gonna come back and we're gonna rule and it's gonna be all good. But, Jonathan doesn't do that. You know why? Because he is covenantal in his relationships. He is a loyal son and he's a loyal friend. He doesn't turn his back on his dad and he doesn't turn his back on his friend either. Consequently, he gets ripped apart. Consequently, figuratively speaking, he gets crucified. His heart gets ripped out when his, his his friend David has to leave. And, of course, he loses the trust of his father. And then the wrath of the father, kind of the hostility of the father, gets poured out on Jonathan. And then eventually, in this, you know, crazy military move, Jonathan and Saul and his brothers and everybody, they all die at Mount Gilboa. But he dies because he is... Faithful to his dad, and he's also faithful to his friend. We we have someone like this in Jesus. He's constant. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I've called you friends. He's talking to his disciples. I've called you friends because servants don't know what their master's doing, but everything the Father's revealed to me, I'm revealing to you. There's a transparency here. And, and we know that, that Jesus, too, we, we know he's dealing with some really flaky people and he's wide open to his disciples. And how open is he to you and to me? I mean, like his arms are wide open, but they're not just wide open. They're nailed wide open. You don't get anybody more transparent than Jesus with his friends. But then there's the constancy. His disciples, his friends, his closest friends, they run and they abandon him and they jump ship and they betray him. And what does Jesus do? He goes the distance all the way to the cross. He's faithful to his father's will for him, but he's also faithful to you and to me, and being completely loyal to the mercy of God and completely loyal to the wrath of God, the whole thing tears his body apart. It's like the father comes to Jesus and says, Okay, you've got one of two options. You can keep you can keep your friends uh by taking hell, or you can avoid hell and leave your friends. And, and Jesus' like, okay, I'll, I'll take hell. It's the Father's will, it's Jesus' will, and in the end, because He's loyal to the mercy, and He's loyal to the justice, and He's loyal to the Father, and He's loyal to you, He gets shredded. He's the true Jonathan. I was visiting with a couple from the first service, um, Michael and April Verbanic, and they said, you know, people talk about how there's this scarlet thread that runs through the Old Testament into the New Testament. But it's more like, they said, it's more like a scarlet cloth. Virtually every personality in the Old Testament points in some respect or another to Jesus. If you ever thought, you know, I wish I had somebody like Jonathan in my life who would protect me, rescue me, boundary my life and make it survivable. If, I, if only I had somebody like Jonathan who would enable me to be everything that I could be like, like David, who was able to ascend to the throne because he had a friend that would die for him like Jonathan. If you've ever wondered, I, you know, what would my life be like if I had a friend like that? Well, you do. I don't know that I could be that kind of a friend. Well, you know what? Nobody here is exactly like Jonathan or, or like Jesus. But let me tell you something. When you recognize that the friend you've always wanted, you already have, that does kind of take you a long distance. Toward being the kind of friend that other people around you need. I wish I had a friend like Jonathan. You already do. Now I don't always live in that truth or that reality, okay? I know. And and probably you don't either, which is why we need to be reminded of that kind of friendship. No greater love has any man than this that 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 he laid down his life for his friend. He laid his life down for you. There's this wonderful proverb, I'm going to close on this, a wonderful proverb, I think it's Proverbs 27, 6, where it talks about faithful are the wounds of a friend. And in that context, it's talking about the truth spoken in love can really be of help to you, even though it kind of hurts. And uh, and and a lot of you are friends like that to me. Um, It's like the Oscar Wilde quote. My, My true friends stabbed me in the front, but never in the back. And I appreciate the stabs y'all have given me over the years, I really do. And I, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of kidding, but not really. They're faithful words. It's, you, you've got that transparency and that approachability, and I appreciate that. But faithful, really, really, really faithful, is the friend who takes the wounds for you. And you have a, a Lord who not only spoke the truth, but it didn't crush you because as He spoke the truth in love, He took the blows. You You have the friend that you already need. So here's my my question. Here are two questions, and we're going to close like we did kind of last week. I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes, if you can put those up on the screen. I want you to think about and then talk to the person next to you. How can I be a better friend? And to whom? Thinking about the constancy and the transparency, how can I be a better friend? And to whom? Maybe there's somebody in particular that is is in, in mind for you. And then, in your own words, I want you to talk to the person next to you. What does the f- friendship of Jesus mean to me? Now, in a couple of minutes, we'll, we'll start the, you know, the closing song, but this is your response to the message. Just process this out loud with someone seated next to you, and if they're alone, we'll go ahead and invade their space. This is Main Street. This is the way we roll, okay? But for a couple of minutes, I want you to talk to maybe people at your table, Or some folks at your aisle or just right across from you, just process this. How can I be a better friend and to whom? And what does the friendship of Jesus mean to me? All right. Start talking.